Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Craig Couch, and every week it's my job to interview top performers and unlock the secrets of their success so that you and I can apply some of their thought patterns, daily rituals, and strategies to our own missions. My next guest is Dr. Ted Kitchens who is a master's degree from Southwestern Theological Seminary and Dallas Theological Seminary, where he later returned for his Ph.D. Ted was a senior pastor of Christ Chapel Bible Church for more than 35 years, tenaciously preaching the Bible with Monday morning relevance. He led the church from a handful of members to around 12,000 members, believe it or not. He began, uh, he began his ministry career with Young Life, uh, an experience through which he met his wife, Lynn, of 44 years. Ted, welcome to the True Grit Podcast. Um, Craig, it's my privilege to be a part of it this morning. Bless you. Yes. Well, I'm glad you're here. Well, the, you know, the word on the street, Ted, is that uh, you were almost eaten by a bear <laughs> while fishing in Alaska. I have not heard this story. <laughs> Oh, well, it's actually well, we, it's not true. We went to Kodiak Island to fish uh, a river and we were camping out. And, and I didn't know this. Or f- there were six of us, but Kodiak Island is crawling with bears. It's like fleas. And they were everywhere all around us. And I mean, big bears. And so we learned early on um, uh, not to leave any food after you finish your meals out around the campground. In fact, we dump it in the river. And interestingly enough, the bears could smell corn, kernel corn under three feet of water. I watched it happen uh, walking alongside this river. It wasn't a fast moving river, but three feet of water, this bear slipped into the water and started eating kernel corn that was left over from our meal off the bottom of the river. But one night these bears came into our camp and smelled our heads through the tent. That's the story. Uh, And we got out of the tent, started yelling, screaming and scared them off. And yeah, but we had, we had a couple of weapons with us, but you know, you don't want to shoot a bear ever. In anywhere in Alaska, or you'll spend the rest of your life in litigation and maybe even prison. But but if had they attacked us, but they actually never attacked us. They uh, were just a threat because of their presence. But we we're fine. It was a great <laughs> trip. Excellent. Caught a lot of fish. Saw a lot of wonderful bears and scenery. Yeah, I can't imagine that moment where you're having to unzip your tent to come out to scare the bears away. That seems pretty counterintuitive. <laughs> Pitch black, pitch black, and with a, with a small flashlight. But we frightened <laughs> them, and they, the, the one that was always smelling our heads, uh, fled. And so, and, but it came around quite a bit. But it, it was, it was no problem. We, we, I felt like we were safe. I never was frightened. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, I'm, I've been, I'm so excited about this interview. So much so that, um, you know, the time at the time of this recording, the election day was yesterday. And uh, between Trump and Biden and all the rest. And man, Ted, I didn't even watch a single minute of TV or anything last night about the election because, frankly, I wanted my head to be clear. My guess is uh, there's probably not a winner at this point. Am I right? That's right. Okay. (laughs) Five or six states still out, and they're really, really close. And so there may not be a winner for weeks. And, uh, you know, only God knows. <laughs> only God knows. That's what I wrote in my journal this morning is that, you know, God, this is up to you. 
Um, yeah. Well, Ted, you've been you've been my spiritual director um, mm-hmm. for over twenty years, um, and you've taken the Bible, which is complicated and it's simple, but it's also mysterious, and and you've given it life for me by by distilling these really incredibly useful elements. Um, and giving them handles for me to hold on to and use um, on Monday morning. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, you've given me tools for my tool belt um, that could that lasted a week, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And and by the next Sunday, I was usually so worn out and beat up that I needed more fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and you've really been a profound impact. Um, on my life, which has an incredible trickle down to my family uh, in a beautiful way. Um, and we've got, Ted, we've got a lot to cover today. And I thought I'd break it down into a few main categories of discussion. Um, number one, Christ Chapel Bible Church, because um, I really want to get into, dive into the growth of the church um, and how you manage that as the leader. Uh, number two is leadership and personal growth. And then our final topic that I'd like to cover is the the church's role in general, uh, the church's role uh, about politics and and these incredibly controversial social issues. Um, so we can start out. Does that sound okay with you? Oh, I love it. Let's do it. Okay, good. So we can start out with Christ Chapel Bible Church uh, with maybe some stats. You. You know, you've been you you were the head pastor for thirty five years. How many sermons have you done? And have you count? Have you done a count that's before? A good, yeah, actually, I had. There was a time when I, I sort of had a rough idea. Probably, if you want to include funerals and and weddings, somewhere close to fifteen hundred, one thousand five hundred different and unique sermons. I was actually about twenty years, and I'm in my fortieth year now. Mm-hmm. So I off last year, 2019, and handed the reins over to our young lead pastor now, Dr. McQueen. But up until that point, uh, I had preached, for the first 20 years, rather, I didn't uh, repeat a sermon. It was just part of my my preparation, you know what I mean? I I didn't want to repeat a sermon. So for the first 20 years, the bottom line is about 1,500 of them, and, and probably 1,250 of them are unique. And then I started like building a car, pulling parts off of them and putting them on new future ones. And so I would say somewhere close to 1500 different sermons. Well, uh, I'm, I'm really fast. You know, you know, let me, and let me stop you and mention something. You, you were really gracious to me in the comments you made, mm. Craig, about my role in you and Jen's life and the children and all that. Uh, but I always believed my father was a dryland cotton farmer. My grandfather was a cotton farmer. I'm pretty much, basic salt of the earth kind of guy. I always believe if, if the faith doesn't work on Monday morning, it doesn't work at all. Uh, I believe it's a real practical thing. So my sermons, my intention in all my sermons was to do two things. First was to give you something that would be rem- memorable for Monday morning at the, at the coffee pot. Mm-hmm. And then second, to give you added value. I started doing sermon notes, written sermon notes with fill in the blanks about the time you and Jen came. And uh, that I did that because it, it not only keeps that information in your mind and gives you something to stick in your Bible for that tough Wednesday that you're facing, but also it's added value to the experience. The church today needs to think about added value 
And by the way, the businessmen and women listening to this, uh, this uh, podcast, added value in business is also super important. And uh, what is, well, how do you do that? Well, I don't know. It depends on the business they're in, but there's ways that we can add value to the customer experience. Uh, so it's not just, I'm getting my teeth cleaned. It's not just, uh, so anyway, added value was part, part of that whole idea of sermon notes. And so in those early years, uh, I wanted to be a Monday morning relevant preacher. And that was actually how I described myself through those years when you and Jim first came. So yeah. thank you. Well, that's great. And that's, that's kind of why I described, you, you know, you, you gave, you gave these biblical principles handles that I could hang on to. Um, they weren't yeah. so ethereal that I couldn't grab them and hold them and put them in my pocket and pull them out on Wednesday, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to step back and think, and just hear from you about your preparation cadence. I, I can't imagine going 20 years and presenting in front of a bunch of people every single week. Can you, can you walk me through the practical um, preparation cadence of, yes. of, of how you did it uh, every week like that? Yes, of course. Um, throughout the 40 years, I'm in my 40s, so 39 uh, and in the first few years, I preached 48 out of the 52 weeks. We always have at the church, you always have your special weekends, uh, your Christmas weekends. You know, we, we call it cantata. And so I didn't have to preach. I maybe prayed and welcomed everyone, but I didn't have to preach. So I preached a, a, a lot of those well, 40, 46 to 48. So we didn't have any guest preachers. I didn't. We were in the early years, in our growth years, we didn't. I didn't have any help. Uh, that's the bottom line to speak up. Uh, I had wonderful Ken Miller to preach occasionally and other on some staff, but mostly it was just me. And I, it wasn't that I was covetous of doing it. It was just, that's how, that's how the cards fell. Well, uh, so my, my point there is over the four, 39 years, really, I had tried every different thing you can imagine, Craig, in the mm. sense of preparing for Sunday. Uh, Monday was typically my day off. A lot of pastors would never take Monday off. If any pastors listening to this, this uh, telecast, uh, I, they don't take Mondays off. And the reason is it's the worst day of the week. I mean, they're so beat up and they're exhausted emotionally and spiritually. I get it. But for me, once I start preparation for a sermon, I can't let it go until uh, the end of the, till, till it's done. The best time of the week for me was on my way home on Sunday nights. Cause you, there was a time there I preached four, four sermons a day, 8, 15, 9, 30, 11, and five o'clock. That was the same sermon, true. But by the time I got out of the church at seven o'clock at night, I knew I couldn't repair anything. It was over. Uh, what what was was, and I was going to go home and just have breakfast and watch TV till my, my my eyes fell asleep, and that was the end of the day. So over the years, I couldn't take off a Friday or a Saturday like a lot of pastors do because I couldn't stop working on the sermon. It's just my personality, tweaking it, polishing it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so to your question. My cadence was I would start again on Tuesday morning for the longest time, and I would uh, have staff meetings and try to Tuesday was pretty much get it all done. And then after uh, the administrative stuff, afternoon, I, I studied two or three hours. And then I was asked yesterday, how much time did I spend normally on the sermon between 15 and 22 hours a week? So the last three days of the week and Saturday was, was kind of polishing the apple. And then, of course, Sunday morning, you get up at four and you deliver so that's how my cadence was take a day off Monday and then and be with my family, be with Lynn, have lunch with her on Mondays and then hit it Tuesday 
administrative stuff all day Tuesday or as much as possible, counseling, whatever. And then Wednesday through Friday, just in my study alone, Saturday polishing, Sunday deliver, start all over again. Now, a quick caveat there. Over the last six or seven years, back to seven years, we started doing something differently. Uh, we, we call it the sermon prep team. And so now whoever's preaching actually meets on Tuesday morning at 1030 with a team of five individuals who are really competent individuals. I happen to be one of those. If I'm preaching, I have to bring my outline, my manuscript to that meeting. And we, we spend an hour going through it and they give me my thoughts. Ben Fuqua's there because he's a millennials guy. He understands how millennials are going to hear this. Doug Cecil's there because he understands how, how the older folks, 50s and up, will understand this, et cetera, et cetera. There's even a, a sweet female who's really brilliant there, Lori Eggners, in the room with us. So what that's done is really changed my week or the week. Monday, you study all day because you have to deliver your package in some sense on Tuesday morning. The good thing about that is it makes the latter part of your week easier mm-hmm. already. And now it's percolating Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The, the insights you got from the team on Tuesday morning are helpful. You tighten up your outline. You deliver it by Thursday afternoon. Friday, you just keep polishing. And then sometimes you can have Saturday a part of it all. So that's the new schedule. But in the early years, that was my 15 to 20 hours a week in preparation for the sermon. And uh, I didn't know until now that I'm, uh, I've got, I'm still on staff, as you know. But I, my hours are probably 25 to 40 a week now, not 60 or 70 like they were for years. Reflecting back on it, Craig, I, I want to say this in, in all humility. Pastors really work hard. They really work hard. I'm looking back on my youth, my middle age as a pastor, the things you referenced here when you and Jen and the family came. And it was a lot of work. It was more work than people kid about it. They tell me all the time, well, I don't know why you're, you're concerned about this or that. You only work 30 minutes a week. <laughs> no, seriously. I, and they're, and they're, they're joking, but they think, you know, you play golf on Monday, you pray a little on Tuesday morning, and then you go to lunch. Then you come back and you have lunch. You have an afternoon nap, then you, and it's just, and actually anything but that's true. It's pretty much 12 hour days, six days a week. That's pretty much it. And remember, Sunday is a real gut buster mm-hmm. because it's like a belt line. And I got so used to that cadence, mm-hmm. I fell into the rhythm and was able to do it. Mm-hmm. And there was a time, and you're not aware of this, but there was a time after doing it for five years, four times every Sunday that I had to go see the doctor. Uh, for I just got emotionally totally unstable. Mm-hmm. And so the, it, it can be deadly for you, but the church was growing like a business. It was exciting. Uh, and so I was willing to give pretty much even my blood to see it keep going because there was a lot of life change going on. And a lot of people were experiencing wonderful things in their lives. We're baptizing and all that. So I, I just worked myself pretty much into a, uh, a depression, basically. Circumstantial totally. Everything was wonderful. For all those businessmen and women out there who go through depression in times like we're in now, I, I get that. Sometimes it's just circumstantial. It's not because you, you, you've lost anything or you've done anything wrong or you mishandled this. It's just so much pressure week after week, month after month. And so that, that's So I had a cadence for sermon preparation, back to your original question. And it changed over the years. But high priority was always sermon preparation. That was my number one job. I believe the pulpit is the place 
where the leadership of the church really takes takes its um, its gavel and, and marches forward. Its passion, its vision comes from the pulpit. Yeah, well, that is um, a really incredible way to frame it, um, and I I wonder, you know, as as the church grew over the years. Um, cause I really, I, I was always impressed. Um, you, you mentioned how you kind of paralleled the church and business together. And I, as a business owner and as a guy that's a business builder, I was always impressed by, uh, by how the church was run, you know, because I, I kind of, I'm looking at the church with, through the lenses of a business owner going, Oh my gosh, there's a tremendous amount of details and a tremendous amount of things to think through to pull this off every week. Um, and as you reflect back on the growth trajectory of Christ Chapel, um, were there any particular tipping points or inflection points that, that you recall? Yeah. Oh yeah. Great question, by the way. Yes. Yes. Uh, early on, about three or four years into it, we were growing a little bit. We went from about like, I can't recall, 100 people, 125 people to 300 people. And I came across a book called um, How to uh, Break the 200 Barrier by a gentleman named Carl George. Basically, it was for pastors. What do you do to grow the church? He actually had a second book after that, How to Break the 500 Barrier. And essentially, Craig, he talked about closing the back door of the church and attracting new people through community. And that community's foundation were small groups, home groups. That's how you developed your new leadership. That's how, say, Craig and Jen Couch would get involved in growing their leadership gifts because you would sign up to lead a group in your home or in somebody else's home. But you, now that's the first thing. The second thing that was amazing to me is there is, there was a synergy that happened for Christ Chapel. And here's how it happened. When we hit the idea, which by the way, I got from Rick Warren, the idea of that the pulpit, whatever's preached in the pulpit is discussed in the home groups on Monday night, Tuesday night, whatever night the groups. So if you're talking about the gospel of John chapter one, and you preach on that from the pulpit on Sunday morning, and your leaders know they're going to be leading on Wednesday night, there are 10 people in their home on that and you provide questions, the pastor provides questions. What we do right now by way of small group ministries, it exploded the church. It just exploded the church in the positive direction, up and to the right, uh, because the back door was closed, because Ted and Lynn Kitchens stuck to uh, Craig and Jen Couch's home group. They loved it. They might not love me as the preacher, or they might not love the music, but they it kind of closed the back door of the church. And then people started growing. In fact, after reading that book, I did something that's always been so funny to me. You allow me to tell this real quickly. Uh, I realized, he says, one of his premises in the book is, the reason churches don't grow is because of the preacher. The preacher tries to do everything and doesn't let things go. Ephesians chapter four is pretty clear. Paul talks about that they're in the church, they're people with gifts. And one of those gifts is given is you got to give that stuff away. I mean, why can't Craig Couch and Jim Couch go to the hospital and, 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 and greet people and take meals to and counsel them? Well, you can, but the pastor thinks he's got to do it all. And he gets insecure if he doesn't. So anyway, here's what I did. After we opened up this home group concept and it began to really grow, 
And I started training leaders, which is really important. Uh, that wasn't the best thing we ever did, but we, we tried to train leaders so they didn't feel incompetent. But I decided the only way to make this thing really work is to come to the pulpit and say that to the church, <laughs> tell the church, listen, if you get sick and you're in the hospital and I come to see you rather than your home group leader or another Christian friend in our church, if me, the senior pastor, comes to see you at the hospital, you are dying. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the last person they want to see. That's hilarious. I've heard till you this, say that. <laughs> till this day, till this day, when I walk into the hospital, people go, is it that bad? Is it that bad? I just got a hangnail. Well, I'm not dying. Uh, and, of course, the point was uh, I want you to respect it when uh, when someone comes to 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 meet your needs, whether it be the hospital or home or work, whatever it is, uh, it doesn't have to be me. And it exploded the church. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really, people, could, as, people said, I can do this. Here, here's my, my, uh, mantra. Uh, and I actually got this from Rick Warren and I just love it. Every member is a minister mm, mm, in every church. Uh. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be the guy. The guy up front is the coach. Right. Well, he's the visionary. He's the one who is 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 charging forward. And with that incredible uh, uh, skill and ability comes this this feeling that they have to, in a way, control and wear all the hats, which is exactly why uh, yeah. businesses don't grow. Um, I, I wrote a blog post a, a month or so ago and it got some of the biggest feedback that I've gotten on any of my posts. And it was about passing, passing responsibility on to someone else so that you can actually make a difference and grow. Um, yeah. you know, and I, I remember just, you know, just back to the business church parallel, sitting in the sanctuary and looking up at all the light bulbs and looking at all these chandeliers and wondering, I wasn't listening to you at the time, obviously, because I was counting and Makes kind sense. of looking. <laughs> I was counting. Well, the, count how many were burned out? Yeah. Right? I was looking at it and I was like, they're all they're they're None of them are burned out. Like I, I was up there and I was thinking, you know, it really takes a lot of, of leadership and uh, attention to excellence um, and detail to, to, to do this. And, you know, and then the other parallel about just church and business is that it kind of operates like a business. I mean, money comes in, money goes out. How in the world do you keep it from being numbers driven? Well, you have to keep stabilizing yourself in the scriptures and in what you know the church is supposed to be about. But you're right. Actually, a church, you know, our church, its budget last year was $24 million. And by the way, in the midst of the COVID situation that we're in at present, uh, as uh, as we take this, um, the giving to our church, even though we're very scattered and haven't been meeting, but just partially, is over budget. Over budget, which is just shocking to me. It's just a Wonderful thing with some fantastic people for a lot of reasons. Anyway, there has to be in the church, yes, accountability, just like there is in business, right? And so we have checks and balances and who handles money. And I don't know anything about who gives in our church unless somebody hands me a check and it's open faced. So I see it. I don't know. I don't have a clue who gives what. I've had people walk up who give large sums of money before and they handed me a check and they wanted me to know. 
fine, all that's good. But but the whole idea of accountability, I'm I don't handle money. We have separation of responsibilities, and the people who handle money are accountable in three different layers. Mm. So money's picked up by the deacons and taken, mm-hmm. and we're debt free as a church, and we always that's constitutionally mandated. Not necessarily. It's not true biblically that that the Bible says you have to be out of debt. It doesn't say that at all. You need to be wise with your money, but we're debt free. And so uh, we don't have to say a whole lot about money all the time. You don't Mm -hmm. have to keep pounding money. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've got our faith raising, fundraising situations where we talk about money a lot and people were very generous. Most folks think our church is a rich church. Actually, that is not true. Every church, and I've been around a long time, has folks who don't have much and, and folks who are very resourced. The difference in our church is across that spectrum, uh, there's a generosity level that's remarkable. The folks with very little are they give, and the folk ten dollars a month. I happen to know an older lady who gives ten dollars a month. Well, she probably couldn't afford a dime more than that. And then people who have a lot of resources are super generous. In most churches, in my experience, the upper level, the the folks who have a lot are not generous. Yeah. You, Look at the, the balance sheets of some of the politicians today that you see. They're not generous people in the sense of their giving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, bottom line is you got to have a budget. you got to have accountability. But for the church, there's a spiritual sense that you have to always say, why are we here? What's really important? So it always has to be about people above everything else. We don't have a product under, other than the gospel. Mm. But we don't have a product. Yeah. Uh, selling widgets and right. whatever. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it, it, I would say that the church, church finance is on the street somewhat misunderstood. Um, for example, you know, when you drive by uh, Christ Chapel, it is beautiful. And there are people in my life that I love dearly that say, why? Would a church that has a twenty-four million dollar budget spend yeah. their resources on on that? It seems like there's there's such need in the world. Why do that? What is your response? My father. Well, yeah, it's a fantastic observation, and there's an easy answer for it. My father believed that he died in two thousand six. He died in March two thousand six. We moved into the new sanctuary, which cost. I'm thinking 20 million. I can't remember. It's been too long ago, but, uh, and we paid cash for it mm. I mean, with money, real money, no, no loans, but he drove up to it several times and he saw this massive structure. By the way, we're called a church without walls because the first time I drove up to it and it really dawned on me, this looks like a castle. It's a, it's for sure a church, right? It, that is a church building. It's not a barn and I'm not opposed to churches and barns not by any means. I think that's good expenditure money. But he, he said the same thing because he was really into the poor and the needy. And he said, look at the, what you spent here, what you could have done with it. I said, you're right, Dad, but there's two reasons that we built this building, two specific reasons. Number one is we believe that Jesus deserves excellence. And we felt like if he gave us that corner, which is the entrance to the arts district for the city of Fort Worth, the, tenth, the top 10 best arts districts in the country is right there in Fort Worth. And the two entrances are University and Montgomery. Well, really, Montgomery now has become the main corridor. All right. So the second reason we built that, just like you see it, is for the city. 
the, the church needs to say to the city of Fort Worth, we are into art just like you are. Jesus loves good artistic expression. It's important for people to turn the corner at Montgomery and I-30 and headed toward the arts district and say, look at that. We won the Arts Digest that year in the state of Texas for that type of building. We didn't even we didn't even know that we, we wouldn't even we didn't even know somebody came and took pictures of it and we were in we were in the running and suddenly we get this validation. You guys should know that for this particular category of architecture structure, you were number one in the state of Texas that year. We want Betsy Price to turn the corner on Montgomery and say, "I'm proud that the people of Jesus." care enough about the arts district in Fort Worth to be in step with it, actually to lead the way mm-hmm. with it. That's why that big, beautiful building is there. It's not because look at us, look how rich we are. We could have fed half of Nicaragua with that money. Uh, we decided to put in the building because we believe Jesus uh, deserves the best. Yeah. Secondly, the city of Fort Worth deserves to see us visually get in line with the arts district. And you know this, we actually have an art. uh, Every other year we have a a month of art at our church. We call it Art Reach, where all our artistic people, singing, dancing, painting, whatever, we have a, the church becomes a massive art gallery just for our people. So Christians need to be reminded it's okay to sing and dance. It's okay to paint. Art is important. Look at the sunset. Every one of us has a paintbrush because God has a paintbrush. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason that building's like that. Well said. You know, as you as I as I look at Christ Chapel as an organization, there are I mean, there how many employees? Over two hundred. Okay, so over two hundred. Um and by the way, some of those are part time. Right. But I think about it's 125 full time. Full time. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a big, big place. Okay. Um so at first glance, it seems as though um, firing someone is is a little bit. Uh, I guess it seems like it it would be uh, much more difficult in a church setting because you've got good apples, bad apples. You've got people that are lazy, people that aren't doing their job. It, it, do you have any pointers or? Um, you know, ideas on how to go about firing someone uh, in your experience for, yes. for the, for the local business guy. Yes. Yes. Well, what the church has to do, un- unlike the a business uh, man, a man or woman is we have to be, we have to go the extra mile in the evaluation and in the warnings. Say, so for instance, you have someone working for you and you call them in cause they're, their competency level is not what you expected. And after a year or two, you feel like they're, they're demonstrating. They just don't fit your core values. For you. And so you warn them once, two weeks later, they do it again. You call them in and say, now I've warned you it's here in the file. We do everything legally, just like you, any business would, we have to. And here's in the file. So you're dismissed. Here's two weeks severance pay. We would do that two or three times. And uh, just to be sure that when it's all said and done, that because these brothers and sisters are part of the body of Christ, but it's a business. I mean, we, you, if Craig and Jen Couch are giving to the church and you've got someone who's just lazy and not accomplishing their job, and I made it clear earlier, uh, Christian work is not easy work. It, it really, it's work. I mean, it's real work. Uh, 
maybe not so much physical stuff, but sometimes even that. I mean, you're hauling around this and that to try to get this ski situation set up or this youth program set up. I mean, there's there's a lot of physical stuff. We actually have a person on staff who's five or six hours a week. All that she does, as I recall now, uh, is is she uh, sets up middle school events so that all the chips and the hamburgers are where they're supposed to be at a certain time, a certain place. See what I mean? Well, that's that's real work. But we 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 go overboard in the way we would handle a staff person being released, and then we would pay twice as much in their departure as a normal business should Mm. because we want to be able to say we did right by you. Mm. Did wrong by us. Mm. And we've never really had a problem with letting people go. Mm -hmm. And here's something that's interesting. Very few people ever leave our staff. Mm. uh, If they do, it's because they're going to something else that they've been trained to do somewhere else. I can't remember, but it may be a couple over the course of 40 years that actually were upset with the work context and with us and just left angry. Most of the time people stay and they stay. And by the way, we pay our staff very well. Mm-hmm. The key to keeping a good staff member. Once you realize that that person's got God's spirit with them, they're doing the right job. They're trained. They're, they're, they're really making a difference in the church and in the kingdom of God. You, you don't, most people think church people don't make a lot of money. And the truth is we don't. Well, maybe what we would have made in the marketplace, never going to make that. But, you know, you don't get a youth pastor and pay him $30,000 a year. You can't live on that these days. You get a full-time youth pastor who's trained and you pay him 50, 60 a year mm-hmm. and insurance. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's not worried about money every day or how am I going to, I've got to go get another job at Burger King to pay my mortgage. So we, the church runs in that, in those uh, administrative areas, really just like every man and woman listening to this broadcast uh, of business runs. Well, you've you've often you've often said that Christ Chapel is not a perfect church, but it's a good church. Um, and you know, you're a very kind, fun-loving guy. Uh, my guess is you don't like conflict that much. <laughs> I may be wrong. Uh, no, you're totally right. Okay. <laughs> Uh, how did you deal with the uh, PR nightmare that happened, I don't know, a decade ago? It may have been longer. I don't know. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when the church was expanding, needed more land, and the neighbors got really upset, what what were some of the steps you took that that could kind of apply to, to a business PR nightmare? Um, and, you know, some, some of the principles you... You, you sort of navigated that with. Yeah, good question. Yeah, it was uh, of the over the 40 years, uh, there have been three really difficult chapters in our book of life. And that's one of the thickest is that the neighborhood. And, and, and rightly so. I understand uh, about that. We were parking everywhere for 10 blocks because the church was growing pretty rapidly and we didn't have any parking places and there were houses all around us. And the church originally was in a community, literally right in the community surrounded by houses. So what happened was the HOA and there's some other folks who were just didn't desire us being in the community. And we were parking in front of their houses quite legally, but it was, it was insensitive, but we absolutely, so we tried to reach out to the community, but by the time we did to let them know we're working on it, but by the time we did, there was a, a few pockets of insurrection in the community 
who just wanted us gone. And I think I've told you that, or maybe you were there, but there's one Sunday I preached and uh, some, one of the deacons opened the back door of the church there in the chapel. And I could see through those French doors, the glass doors into the street. And the church was surrounded with signs that said, stop this church. And channel five, channel 11, and channel four were all on the front lawn of the church talking to the neighbors. They, they completely surrounded the church. Well, to answer your question, it was a very difficult time. My life was threatened. Um, you know, just the, the neighborhood did not treat us correctly, but I do understand their response to us. I'm totally forgiving on it. We just worked our way through it one day at a time. We, what key contacts in the community do we need to talk to? The HOA, President HOA, we had those conversations. How can we, and then the city council had to get involved because there was such animosity by the time we actually realized how bad it was that city council got involved and we just, we, here's what we did. We worked our way through it one day at a time. We would be pushed back a couple steps one week and the next week we'd make two or three steps forward. We built some friendships in the community. We made some promises. Right now we have a covenant with our community that we will not buy any more houses around the church. We will not expand Christ Chapel's footprint for 40 years. So uh, maybe we're three years into it. So we got 37 left. So uh, we, we had to make some agreements. City council got involved and the mayor and all that. But I'll tell you this right now, we have a sweet, good relationship with our community. People walk to church now. In those days, a lot of people didn't even go to our church. That was their big rub, too, by the way. It's not that you should park in front of my house. And, and by the way, sometimes, <laughs> two times, we had a college girl. I, I don't want to blame this on girls, but sometimes I won't say this, that they're not the best drivers. But they <laughs> park right in the driveway. Yeah, They were late to church, couldn't find a place to park, park in the driveway. So we're out there with lividly angry neighbors bouncing a Volkswagen out of their driveway onto their lawn. So we could, they could get their car out. And this person had gone off to lunch somewhere with a college group, I guess. So point is, we, we offended them, and rightly so. But over the period, so what's the principle there that I learned from it? Some situations are so difficult, there's no easy fix. Time and you doing what's right one day at a time. That's all you can do. It took literally three years mm. to our way through all of that. Uh, but we, st- we, we, tr- we were always honest. We, un- we, we understood the, the dilemma and understood why they felt the way they did. And there's some other factors that probably wouldn't be valuable to discuss right now uh, in this iPod, but uh, in this post. But, but <laughs> it's a end, podcast, I, Ted. It's not an podcast, iPod. Yeah. It's not a, yeah. it's not an iPod. <laughs> it's not a telecast oh, either. Right. It's a podcast. <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry, sorry Craig. <laughs> okay. In this podcast. So anyway, I think I hope that helps to, to your businessmen and women out there. But you're you're, you're mm. going to come up against a lot of issues, and and they're emotional sometimes. They're not even logistic, uh, legitimate. They're they're emotional issues. People feel threatened. There are people in our community who's, who didn't have a faith, and they believe like churches shouldn't exist. Mm. They just totally disagreed with our faith system, and they don't mm. didn't want them that community. We live here. We don't want you here, but you just one day at a time, love them. And we, we worked our way out of that over a period of about three years. And now I would tell you it's sweet and good 
and uh, I'm, I'm so glad we did. Now the head of the HOA in our community attends our church actively. Wow. Yeah. And she's objective. So she's not going to just let us get away with anything, but in <laughs> community other things have distracted them now and the church is no longer for them a distraction by the way we've added tremendous value to their homes the square footage of value to homes around our church is gone out of sight yeah out of sight mm-hmm. now that years ago well that means my taxes are higher and it's your fault but i would stop and say <laughs> yeah you can't have both here yeah. so. <laughs> well well i i want to transition into um kind of the leadership and personal growth um, part of our conversation. And, you know, I've talked to several um, business leaders um, and just a a few of them have mentioned how impressed they were with the the transition um, of, of you sort of sunsetting your career um, as the head pastor uh, and then passing that on to uh, to Cody McQueen, and just comparing it to a regular uh, corporation. I think most corporations don't do it as well as you guys did. Were there any sort of elements that you focused on most to to finish well? Yes. Um. I tendered my resignation formally in writing in February of 2010. Wow. Yeah, nine years before it actually happened. And it was a legitimate resignation, but the board, it was at a board retreat, elder board retreat, and their their mouths dropped open. Lynn and I had prayed about it. I still got, of course, a copy of the resignation. I passed one out to everybody. I read it. It's a page long. And I want to be real clear about this. It had nothing to do with me being tired. At the time, I was only 60 years old. It had nothing to do with the fact that I think people should retire at 65 because I don't agree with that at all. I definitely think preachers could preach way beyond 65. But I, but I tendered my resignation to fire a shot across the bow of the leadership to let them know, men, look around. Ladies and gentlemen, look around. What God's done in this corner persevering through the neighborhood things, purchasing the properties. Hey, Christ Chapel owns the corner of Montgomery and I-30. That's a major intersection in the whole of the South, in a sense. You know what I mean? You can't mm-hmm. buy that property anymore. And, and, I, and I don't have time to tell you the stories, but how that came about was just amazing. So I wanted, I believe the church deserved 40 more years. And there's no way, at the time, 30, because I'd been there 30 years in 2010. There was no way for me to stay in the pulpit for the next 20 years and it'd be healthy. I'm looking in the mirror, seeing how I've changed physically. I, st- I think I can still preach good sermons, Craig. In fact, I preach uh, next week. I, I have the pulpit. But if the church doesn't start working on the moment you go to work uh, in a business endeavor or in a church, you really should start thinking about transition. Really. And, and when you start thinking about it, it percolates a little bit and it may take a couple of years, which it did with us. But the, the board got the message. And so it, three years later, in 2013, we began to put it on the agenda every time the board met. So we began to get serious about how is that going to look? Right. At this point, I'm 63. 
I, I wasn't going to walk out the door and quit. I just wanted to get their attention. I I don't want to be a pastor trying to hire somebody to replace me when I'm 75 years old and the church is floundering right now. It right. is on a rocket ship. So that's what brought it about. Doesn't need to retire. Don't believe 65 is a quitting time. I believe I could keep on doing it, but it wouldn't be healthy for the church. And that's true for businesses, by the way. Now, a young business doesn't need to be thinking about transition yet, but always in the back of your mind, looking at folks around you, men and women around you in your companies who really show gifts in areas that might be key leadership gifts. Uh, Honor that. Point that out. Shine the light on it and start preparing them for taking over a division or maybe even taking your place someday. Um, it took some humility because I miss it. You know, I really miss that. Uh, I got a lot of affirmation from people like you and Jen who love me. And, you know, I could preach a C sermon and people go, way to go, preacher. Man, that was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, but yeah. why, why would that be true? Because of the relationship. That's right. But uh, the transition took place in 2019 mm-hmm. and he did not know we were looking at him for three years before it happened. So it was all, it was kind of clandestine. It was in the shadows. Right. We, in fact, you you should know this. We started, I started a teaching team after all these years where I did most of it myself, started a teaching team with uh, Dr. Mark Bailey from Dallas seminary and a couple other individuals and Ken Miller, um, our our men's minister. The, The reason we started that wasn't to give me a break. That was helpful. It was to insert Cody McQueen into the, into the lineup for regular preaching without him knowing we were looking at him. I want to go back to something real quick. So what, what you're describing is, is, is that you, you really were super clear with the key people um, by shooting that shot across the bow so early. And I think that I just really want to highlight that piece because you, you in essence telegraphed, a reality to them that they weren't expecting their jaws dropped as you described. Right. And then you, you gave them something, you gave them a gift. You gave them the gift of clarity and certainty that you were going to move on. And that opened their mind to begin to help you think through the next steps so that you're not doing it on your own. Because right. what would normally right. happen, I, I would guess, is that, you know, uh, someone just sort of makes a two-year plan or something like that. And the transition uh, and duration of the transition and how you went about it, you know, I told I told Jennifer, I said, you know, as soon as Cody started preaching, I, I was like, I think they're grooming this guy. I think they're grooming this yeah, guy. Like, I, I kind of felt that vibe and it was, was clandestine, but at the same time, it was... It was, um, it, it's just a, I just admire, um, admire that approach. I want to shift over to something that, that I think oh, by is. The way, let me, let me stop you for oh, please. two to another. Number one is I fired the shot across the bow of the leadership. Mm, oh, yeah. In 2010. Then in 2014, we, we, and so that was for the leadership. Mm. But the church body itself, the teaching team, was a way to disguise Cody so Cody would know. Wait, why am I up here all the time and have an expectation? But it also spoke to the congregation. Change is coming. Okay. Yeah. So it, it normalized other faces up That's there. That's right. In a That's way. Right. Yeah. 
Um, I, I love the seemingly lost art of apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you did that with Cody uh, in a pretty cool way. Are, are there any useful pointers for someone who is looking to be on the apprentice side of the equation? Yes, I think uh, you have to ask the question, does this individual have a heart for what we're doing? Do they feel called to it in business? Are they competent to do the job? Um, we, we really believe Cody was competent to do the job. He had the training and all that. And in a business context, when you look around your staff, who in the group is competent? Secondly, who has the courage to do it? Craig, you know what it's like today to be the pastor of a church like Christ Chapel. You got every issue you can imagine from COVID. We've been shut down since March, reopening the church, the finances, the staff issues, the the racial issues, the people critical of this and that because you don't speak enough about this candidate for this or that. It's you got to have somebody who's got courage. And I believe he really he had courage to take this thing to the next step. Um, So. I hope that helps, but I, I do think there are things as an apprentice you're looking for. Are they teachable? Are they teachable? Uh, obvi- that's an obvious one on the, just on the surface, but he was very teachable. He wanted to know, how did I do? And he didn't ask that question for any kind of personal strokes. He wanted to be, he wanted to polish that apple and get better at what he was doing. And he still is every single time he preaches. He needs to keep doing more of it. Hey, I've got lots of great stories and anecdotes and illustrations because I've been doing it for 40 years yeah. and I, I've got scars all over me. Yep. Seriously scars all over me. I, I, I can stop. I can tell you stories right now for the next two hours about just church stuff. Well, he hasn't, he's only 38, maybe 39 now. He's he's the next decade. He's going to have those scars and he, his, his illustrations and his, the demeanor, the cha- his sermons is His presentation of the truth is going to, continue to be richer and deeper and bolder. He, he, right now he's a young guy. He's attracting a whole lot of young couples, which is really a, the vibrancy of a church. So anyway, as an apprentice, I look for that in him. He had the courage I think he needed to take on this role. And then he also had the competency and, and he had the character. Those three, three C's, you know, of leadership character. Uh, and you, today you got to be real careful about the sexual issues. They're big, big, big for both men and women. There's got to be great integrity there in your business and your company, and certainly in the church, or else it's it implodes the company, right. it implodes the church. Right. Well, um, as a as a business builder, um, I often struggle with my competitive nature. Um, I love winning. Um, it it feels good to me to. Um, to gut the competition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I, just a, a quick answer would be fine, but how do I foster a healthy competitive spirit um, that isn't harsh or mean, but also challenges the status quo? Well, the first thing I think of is win-win. Mm. Uh, when you're, in your business, uh, you've got to win. You got to you got to pay the bills. It's you got to have resources. 
but is the customer winning? Are they getting a good product? Is mm-hmm. it really worth its value? Uh, so when it comes to competition, I think you do the best you can. You do it with excellence, but you think in the terms of win-win. And by the way, just, just along those lines, we as often as businessmen and women fear other companies and they take a part of our part of our uh, base and all that kind of thing. I get all that, but you know what I learned years ago, uh, I remember when fellowship Bible church, Ed Young Jr.'s church moved out by Montgomery Ward's mall and they bought a big warehouse over there and started church. I remember thinking to myself, this has been 15 years ago. Oh man, that's a big gorilla out of Dallas uh, Irving. And they're going to just gut our church. Mm. And the truth is Craig, we grew more rapidly and so did they. Mm. So often stop your fears, just settle into what, whatever you're building, making, selling, whatever your, your calling is and do it with the, with excellence and, and, and try to get a win-win on both sides of the ledger and your business will grow. I love it. Wow. That's, that's just great. Um, you know, I, I love, I love a growing business very much. I love to match. Oh, I, I mean, I love to match the gas in, in area, every area of my life, really. Um, and one of the things, and I, I caution myself to, to keep this from becoming a personal coaching session here, but, uh, I really struggle, um, Ted balancing self-sufficiency and faith. Um, because my understanding of the Bible is that God is not going to do anything for me that I can do for myself. Um, so, yeah, so I carry on just mashing the gas uh, and basically repeat this mantra in my mind, Craig, love God and do what you want. Well, the problem is, is that what I want is often not what God wants. Can you speak to this, this tension that I'm feeling? Yeah, of course. Well, the love of God is, is the highest priority, but I, I think, you know, and I, I've been in business myself. I've told you that, you know, that, um, I always saw my work in the marketplace and also in the church as a partnership. And so God's given me the gifts. He's, he's put people around me that teach me to do this better. That's his role. I've, he has actually blessed my life financially at times that I should, I didn't deserve it. I mean, he, he showed up as a partner and put something on the table. There are other times when I failed at something, but it turned out to be as Romans eight twenty eight says, good for me. All things work together for good. If you love the Lord, I think it's about a partnership where you bring on a Monday morning, your gift mix, your education, your skill level. And you say, Lord, now I want to move forward today. I want to make money. I want to take care of my family. I want to be, I have a good reputation in the community, but I know none of that can happen unless you go before me, you open up the pathways, give me opportunities, help me find things that I can buy and sell that will help my employees and our company on the bottom line. I, I think God is not, not opposed to, to, uh, in fact, I'm a big capitalist, but, but you understand I'm a capitalist only because I believe in the faith because it's, it's, Christ, it's the Judeo-Christian ethic that holds capitalism together. Otherwise, it becomes rampant, crazy greed, etc., which is what a lot of the world sees anyway. So back to that whole idea of, of business. I'm, it, 
See it as a partnership with God. Pray in the mornings for your company. When you get your team together, if you have a faith-based team, pray about it. And, at, and just see where God, God, he'll open up pathways and it'll shock you. And he'll sometimes close doors. I've got friend. I've got a friend years ago was going to this big real estate deal that some guy talked him into. And his, he kept praying about it and praying about it. And he had the money to do it. And he was going to make a whole bunch of money. He went home one night and his wife said, he told his wife about it, which is sometimes a big mistake. <laughs> and he, he, she said, you're not going to do that. That doesn't sound right to me. And, and uh, so he didn't. And you know what? Everybody involved in it went to prison except him because he backed out of it. And he would tell you to this day, it was because God used my wife. He partnered through her, you know, kind of Pilate's wife thing, have nothing to do with this man in the Gospels. That's what Pilate's wife said to Pilate before he, you know, turned Jesus over to the Jews for crucifixion. But anyway, the bottom line is partnership. I think partnership is the key. And see your work. Uh, partnership's a hard thing. I have a partner. I think you've got a partner. Um, I'll, I always tell young men and women, don't partner unless you have to, unless you can. And, 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 and the whole idea of partnership, because sometimes you think you, there's so many decisions have to be made with a partner that sometimes are at odds. And it, it can be difficult deep inside you to do it. I've had a partner for 42 years. I have some real estate holdings. I was in business before I, we started the church, before the church came to the church. And so, uh, but he, he, I love him. We do not always agree. We get along because we highly respect each other. We know we're both totally honest, the best we can. We know God's, God's blessed our partnership, even when sometimes inside we didn't agree on the colors of this or purchase of that or how much money to invest in this or that. Partnerships are hard. I tell young men and women, if you can stay out of a partnership, you can financially do that unless this person brings some real needed assets to that partnership. Do it alone. Do it alone. Uh, but partnering with God, how do you lose? I mean, right. he, he for you in the process. Yeah. Well, you know, my experience with my partnership with Lee, we've been partners for almost 20 years. It's like a second marriage. It's really freaking hard. I mean, we've, uh, it's, it's just like, it's wonderful, uh, because there's trust, um, yes. that, and, has to be. and there's no crossover in ability. Um, and you know, it's, uh, it has just been, uh, well, we, let we, let's just say we've really sharpened each other a lot. Like it's, yeah, it's just with my partnership too, but let me tell you how you live with a partnership. And I think this is really important. At times when you're frustrated with it, you stop and you sit down and you say, what has my partner brought to the table? I don't mean money. I mean, personal things to your life. Mm. Like because of his presence, you're free to be with the family on some weekends because of her presence. You're able to do this or that. Like with my partner, my children live real close to me, 280 yards from me across the valley. I live in the country. It's because my partner saw this property way back when and loved me enough to say, Hey, you need to get on that right now. And he not only said that he went and got it himself. So every time I get angry at him because he's let something slide or I'm a details guy, he's not that part of that marriage thing. I stop and say to myself, what has he done in my life? That's made my life so much richer. And it's usually has nothing to do with money. 
I love it. That's so wise. I, I mean, that's need- so it's a, it's 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 just really focusing on the things that you're thankful for, which with Lee, you know, when when I get ticked off at at him, um it's easy for that stuff to just get trumped and thrown away. Um but at the at the end of the day, you're right. If I shift my thinking and think, oh my gosh, because I couldn't have done it without him. I'd have run it into the. I'd have run our companies into the ground years ago if it wasn't for his ability to keep track of the details and just you know. Right. I mean, it's just, there's something there. Yeah, for sure. In the partnership. Well, yeah. um, I, we're running out of time, and I. But my. Okay. But the last thing I wanted to talk about was politics in the church, and um, sure, I'm. I'm conflicted because I'm a little bit frustrated that the church in general, I'm not talking about Christ Chapel, the church in general is silent about politics. And so what is what keeps the church from being bold and endorsing a candidate that a candidate that aligns with Bible the Bible's teaching. Um the problem is obviously is maybe maybe the best way to stated as the best candidate because you know i've i voted for trump but i had to hold my nose to do it um but what i really did was i voted against biden because as i understand the bible i'm like trump's the better choice but i don't like the guy he's a pompous middle schooler (laughs) (laughs) but i but you know it's like ah. so but i want to understand why is the church quiet about this well, some some aren't, and of course, probably most are. Um, it's a tough deal. This particular cycle has been really tough, but here's the answer. What is the role of the church on the earth? It, it, the role of the church on the earth is to preach Jesus, to preach the gospel. And historically, churches who have drifted away from that and stopped making personal spiritual growth and discipleship, highest priority, the gospel from the pulpit, highest priority, the teaching, the, the, the community, the family part of what a church is. The word ecclesia means gathering. That's the problem with the COVID deal today. We're not gathered. So the church itself, by very definition, is not meaning. So what happens is when a, when a pastor gets up front and he says, vote, you need to vote for, which there are pastors in the country are doing this. Uh, God bless them. I'm not trying to be critical of them. I'm just telling you, most churches don't do that. It's because um, the next thing you find yourself doing is becoming a church that that is political and not focused on kingdom issues like the Savior himself. Cycles come and go. Whoever wins this election is going to be gone in four years. And there's another one, and there's another one. What the church needs to do is teach biblical principles uh, of what it's what a Christian should be and do in society, how we should be salt and light, and then challenge us to to embrace our God-given responsibility to vote based on those on whatever platforms each of these particular uh, political parties have. So uh, the bottom line is there are churches in the city of Fort Worth right now. They are dead, and they're dead, Craig, because years ago they decided the most important thing for them was to feed the poor and needy. It was. I can think of a church now. I won't use, of course, their name, but they take a, they do a fantastic coat drive every winter for the kids in the city who don't have coats. Wonderful deal, but they're not preaching the gospel at all. So what they become a church that's the hands of Jesus in the community, 
but there's no gospel appeal. There's no soul saving. There's no, no spiritual stuff. So the church pretty soon becomes a, a, a cultural, uh, a, a social kind of, uh, oh, I don't know, movement and not really the, the, the Jesus and his kingdom. Mm-hmm. That happened so easily. By the way, you have people sitting in the pews every week, even at our church, who don't agree with everybody else's political position. So you get up and you talk about vote for this candidate. That individual who maybe really needed Jesus is not coming back. Uh, the churches who stand up and say vote for this candidate, that that whole church is going to become only that political party. And then when that political party's gone, what are you doing? Every Sunday, you're trying to get everybody to come back to center and believe in that particular platform rather than saying Jesus is king here. Mm. Need to vote? Yeah. Do we need to be educated? Yes. The church should provide that information, handouts. Here's what these candidates believe in and don't believe in. Here's their voting record. But when the church becomes, here's how we change culture, changing hearts. When you change a heart, Craig and Jen Couch, they, they want to go out and vote for the right candidate. Even they, they have to hold their nose while they do it. They know <laughs> at the end of the day, and I have to do, hold my nose. At the end of the day, the, the, there's religious freedom. The family is protected, right? And uh, the whole these gender issues are put back in balance. But if we stand up every week and talk about those things, soon Jesus is obscure. And the heart change part is gone. That's what's happened to the American church. The big C today is not preaching the gospel from the pulpit. Wow. Well, you know, so setting politics aside, but this is closely related to it. You know, the, the church kind of keeps a hands-off approach to, to public affairs um, and they stick to preaching. And a friend of mine pointed out how that really doesn't work. Um, for example, the white church, right, failed from from slavery to Jim Crow to, to mass incarceration. And so the outcome of that has been that no one really looks to the church to solve issues or to speak out. How do we change that? Well... The way it's designed to work is that the church proclaims truth, calls out sin, which is lack of, of justice, r- racial issues. That's sin. That's all sin. Calls it out. And then the members in the pews go out and run for election. They go out and speak against racial injustice. They go out and support the police. You see what I mean? The, the church itself is responsible. At the, at the nucleus of the church, the pulpit and the teaching ministry of the church, that's supposed to be the life change agent that puts me and you out there on the front lines. The church is supposed to be out there on the front lines making a difference. It's, it, the breakdown has been the pulpits haven't been preaching truth, number one. And then those of us like me who sit in the pews now are not always bold enough to go out and, and stand against racial injustice. You're right about all of that. The churches fail miserably. Remember, we're full of sinners, and uh, and we all have prejudices, frankly. Uh, so we the church has failed. There's no question about that. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm I'm glad that. I mean, I, and I think the church, at least in general, feel is owning that piece, which I think is good. Uh, no question, no question. 
But but as a conservative church, we can't really speak to all the liberal churches out there that are barely alive. Mm-hmm. We can't. We try. I try to talk to pastors before about you need to stand and preach against abortion. You need to stand up and talk about that in your sermons when you talk about life issues. Mm-hmm. You can always insert all those things, and they just won't do it. Right. And so people don't hear it, so their people don't care, and so their people vote for candidates that are pro-choice. That. So conservative churches have to be keep being conservative, keep training and, and apprenticing young men and women to go out and make a difference. I'm very excited about our college ministry. We've got a huge college ministry now. I don't know if you've seen the building and been in it, but man, it's awesome. And they're having two worship experiences now, and those young leaders are going to make a difference in the future. I, I'm really optimistic about the future as it relates to changing culture. But we, we are on a fight. We're in a fight, and we have to continue to be what Christ has called us to be and do. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, we are, we're out of time, Ted, but I want to, I'm going to do some fun rapid fire questions um, that just, you can just answer one, one word, one sentence or whatever. What does the first hour of your day look like? Coffee. Uh, Coffee and uh, uh, journaling. You write. I sit alone. I write. I sit alone and my brain just goes all over the place. And then I tighten it up and put everything on a page. I have a journal. Of my, I'm asking the father today to do these. My partnership meeting happens at early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I, at my age, I'll be 72 at Christmas. I, I have to sit down a little while and slowly like, things get going. It's seriously kind of like your engine starts slow. <laughs> I don't know about you. You're still a young man. You've got to, you've got to choke, you pull, and <laughs> let it run for a little. It's <laughs> funny. Well, it's it's hilarious. So, uh, and so when you say you have a partnership meeting, you're you're actually talking about your partnership with God. Correct. Okay. Okay. I just I wanted a, to clarify that. I have a quiet time with yeah. him and say, mm-hmm. "All right, this is the day ahead of me. What do you want me to accomplish? Mm. What do you feel like uh, today?" Yeah. Well, and the writing piece is something that I um, I've been you doing for all your life. Yeah, yeah, I just I always yeah, I have every day. And it, and it, and I just it sort of dawned on me the other day. Um, I read an article by this kind of internet thinker named Kevin Kelly, and he he said that he wrote so that he could think instead of thinking and then writing. Right. And and I thought, oh, that's why. Because it's a really beautiful time for me to think and reflect, and I just, I just really have grown to love writing um, on a whole new level. Actually, in the last couple of years. Um, so, next question: You got two buttons that God gave you, and says that you can press one to go to heaven right now, or press the other one to stay. Which one do you press? Stay. Stay. Why is that? Yeah, I got grandbabies. <laughs> I love it. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm yeah. jealous. It's it's pretty neat. It's oh, pretty neat. I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait. Uh so uh you said something really hilarious in the beginning of our uh interview about people uh misunderstanding how much time you spend being a pastor. So what do you say to somebody that says, Man, Ted, you're lucky to be a pastor. You only have to work one day a week. What's your answer? <laughs> what I say to them? Yeah. I say, okay, you follow me that one day. <laughs> you be my shadow. Be <laughs> yeah. okay. Tell me your most embarrassing preaching, wedding, or funeral moment. Okay, preaching moment. I came up to the pulpit 
um, 20 years ago. And all of a sudden over the loudspeaker came a trucker who did a breaker, breaker one nine. This is a uh, dark alley. And what happened was some glitch in our audio system picked up out on I-30, uh, a CB. Uh, and I, yeah, so I stood at the pulpit with this trucker talking <laughs> over the loudspeaker. And so I made fun of it. It's God talking to me, you know, and, we, and I, the God's a really trucker and he's talking to us. So, but that's one of the most embarrassing and funny moments, uh, you know, uh, for me, really. And then one time I, on the way up to the pulpit, I had too much coffee, I guess. I tripped and fell. <laughs> Second step, I hit my face on the floor. <laughs> Did everybody laugh or was it like oh, a yeah. gasp? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I jumped up and I, and I jumped. I cleared. I jumped up real quick. You know how you do that? You're so embarrassed. And I, and I said, you know, I've been expecting that to happen for years. <laughs> Let's go on about this. So open your Bible, too. I love it. <laughs> Love it. That was pretty. That was pretty embarrassing. Yeah. Well, are there any books that you recommend uh, more often than others? You know, is there a certain maybe a business one and maybe one more for living your life? Yeah, yeah. A business one would be, of course, good to great. Uh, mm. But one about a guy named Chip Ingram, who is not a friend, but I know him. Good to great in God's eyes. In God's and, eyes, where he takes uh, Collins as good to great for businessmen and women and puts it in a, puts a spiritual spin on good. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're saying he, he took the good to great ideas and wrote a book Correct. called in God's Correct. eyes. Oh, I've not read yeah. that. How interesting. In fact, I'm looking at it right now, but it, it's, it's read just like Collins's book. I'm so, I don't know how he got away with it, but it looks just like Collins. And it's called good to great in God's eyes. Nice. <laughs> I bet Collins blessed it. He probably wrote the forward. <laughs> He may have. I actually, yeah. I actually didn't even notice that. But yeah, wow. uh, so that that'd be good. That, that'd be good for both a, a businessman and woman, or, and who might be also a person mm-hmm. person of faith. Um, I think um, another would be the supremacy of Christ, and I would say the Gospel of John. Mm, yeah, book I would read would be the Gospel of John, according mm-hmm. to John. If, mm-hmm. if a person really wanted to get started in biblical reading, the best. To me, the best insight in all the whole New Testament for a first-time reader would be the gospel, the life of Jesus, the gospel of John. Well, man, Ted, thank you so much. Uh, uh, my joy. My man, joy. thank you so much for coming on the sh- show. And, you know, and and really thank you for, for being my spiritual mentor all these years and pouring into my life. It has, it has impacted a lot of people. Um, yeah, and so I, I just, my joy, I really, really, I'm not finished yet. God willing. (laughs) Yeah. So any, uh, any parting words before we go? Well, no, trust God, uh, partner with him, uh, enjoy every day. These days won't come back. I'm telling you, uh, I'll be 72 Christmas. I think I mentioned, and every day is a privilege to live in it, live it with passion, enjoy a good meal, uh, laugh a lot. Uh, Those are good things from the hand of God. Uh, Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just know you're blessed and live it out. Well, folks, that wraps up our show for this week. If you found this interview helpful and would like to get pearls of wisdom that I've gathered along the way, go to TrueGritPodcast.com and subscribe to the True Grit blog. You will get short, helpful emails written by yours truly. Included in these posts, you will also get the show notes with links to books, articles, and other cool things I run across. Thanks, as always, for listening to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. 
And don't forget, building a company and a life of meaning takes true grit. Grit.